Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello and welcome to another episode of I Foresee Trouble. This week it's Kira back in studio with Mick and Claire. We're Hooray! <laughs> hey. um, it's it's Abandoned by Damien once more. Oh, he's off on his travels again. Yeah. Yeah. Basque country this week. Any heard is a free lunch. Damien is there. <laughs> so anyway, this week in Parliament hasn't been hugely busy in terms of big legislative files and stuff, but we thought we'd get a little kind of catch up on things in terms of foreign affairs, the war, the wider impacts of it in particular, and kind of the geopolitical games that are happening on the world stage in relation to the war. We also want to talk about the massacre of um, an undefined number, it's really unclear, but a, many migrants in, in the Spanish enclave of Melilla in, in Morocco and the reception that that has had, particularly in Ireland, has been really shocking. And then we're also going to talk briefly about some environmental files. But I suppose we'll start off with the big topic, the one we always talk about, the war. Um, and yeah, the, the big narrative at the moment is the impact on the cost of living, uh, the relationship with energy prices and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, look at Ukraine is still the big story in here and every meeting of every committee would seem to have in some shape or form a Ukrainian presence, as it were. Um, there's no doubt about it. Outside here in the real world, the impact on the cost of living is really beginning to bite on citizens. We see this in the uptake in strikes. It's been really captured the media in terms of the UK and Ireland, particularly because of the um, election of Mick Lynch as head of the Railway Workers Union. He seems to have encapsulated that idea of when some people are losing, as ordinary people are, somebody else is winning and that big profits are being made by others. And I mean, this is, a, I suppose, a theme of the Ukrainian situation. I mean, we've had a number of meetings of the various committees, security and defence and so on. And the European arms industry is benefiting massively by the amount of money that's going in. Now, increasingly, a lot of these meetings are being held in camera and we're being reminded time and time again that we're not allowed to give information out of the committee, which we think is really disgraceful and it completely belies this idea that we have an open, transparent EU. Why are all these meetings being held behind closed doors uh, and why are we not allowed to talk about the content of it? It's pretty bad. But it does seem that the impact is beginning to bite. I mean, it was quite wide scale on the internet. Uh, Macron talking to Biden at the G7, basically saying, listen, the Saudis are running out of oil here. We're running into serious problems. So all of these issues, I think, are beginning to bite and put the overall, I suppose, continuation of the war which is the strategy of the EU now openly to carry on until one side wears the other side out, which is to me really frightening because the Russian army is huge. 
its resources are huge. So do they expect and they seem to the Ukrainians to keep on fighting until there's no Russians left because that isn't obviously going to happen. But still, the technology and everything has been poured in in that direction and the impact that that's going to have on the living standards of Europeans is just going to be frightening as winter bites and the prices begin to spiral. Yeah, it was interesting actually that 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 uh, story in terms of the the discussions about Saudi Arabia at the G7 um, and this kind of move towards uh, the West even giving more support in terms of the Saudi war effort in Yemen. So it shows those kind of wider impacts of how, how this war in Ukraine is taking centre stage at the expense maybe of people elsewhere. Of, every, of just about everything. Mm. I mean, um, we've, we've talked about the rising cost of living uh, across Europe and now we see, uh, we're seeing, uh, and it's a, 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 people People are saying, okay, uh, there's no doubt about it, but the war has caused a huge problem around uh, the price of energy, the price of food in particular, uh, but so have the sanctions, right? There's a pair of them, right? And the sanctions are adding uh, misery onto misery already, right? Uh, but the European Union is prepared to do this, the Americans are prepared to do it, in order to satisfy their geopolitical agenda at the cost of the European citizens. And as you referred to, Kira, um, what, what's going on with Saudi? Getting countries like Saudi on board and letting them continue a genocide in Yemen where over 400,000 have been killed and 15.8 million driven into extreme poverty, according to the UN. And now it's going to get worse because uh, they're literally being given... Uh, a free license to do as they, as they see fit uh, in order to keep them on board in the war. And we see the same with Turkey. Turkey said they didn't want to allow Finland and Sweden into NATO uh, because uh, an existing member can object to a newcomer. And uh, But now they're backing down uh, with Turkey's demands. So the Turks who are illegally occupying Iraq and stealing their oil illegally occupying Syria and stealing wheat and God knows what else. And uh, they're using their expansion into both uh, to hammer the Kurds as much as they can. Um, they're literally being told, oh, yeah, you can do what you like. And so Turkey can uh, uh, break international law morning, noon and night uh, in Iraq and Syria. And uh, the European Union doesn't give a damn. International law, forget about it. Uh, we've other games to play now and uh, this is what's happening. But uh, it's interesting, I mean, Claire was on about um, uh, the strikes in Britain, right? And uh, a huge part of it is there's a massive Im fight back against possible wage increase. And we're looking at inflation. Uh, um, Christian Lagarde from the ECB said inflation uh, last week uh, for the EU at present is 8.1%, right? Unheard of, right? And it could reach 10 before the year is out. Uh, but there's nobody wanting to increase wages to match inflation. Mm -hmm. And, and why, why not? Important to remember that that's essentially just a blanket wage decrease because if... Oh, exactly, you know, yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, because the inflation, I mean, uh, if you have inflation of 8.1%, even if you gave a wage increase of 3.1%, <coughs> you have a deflation of wages of 5%, mm -hmm. right? And this is what the union workers, and there's going to be a lot of strikes around Europe and people uh, in Ireland planning to travel here, there and everywhere across Europe this year. And I wouldn't blame them for one day, 
but just keep in mind there's going to be a lot of strikes and uh, your plans are going to be interfered with a lot but uh, a big problem for the people with money is that if wages uh, do go up it implies that workers uh, actually have the power to demand wages in line with rising prices now I mean you would say well why shouldn't that be the case and so it should be the case but the people with money have been fighting against this right and the losers in that case are the holders of uh, serious money assets, right? So uh, we would argue that profits are driving inflation, not wages, because wages are actually falling way behind, right? Uh, and there's an awful lot of money stuck uh, in the pockets of wealthy shareholders and executives, uh, and it's not stuck in the profits of uh, in the pockets of workers, right? Uh, but w- w- working people deserve wage increases in line with inflation, and so as we said, anything else would be a pay cut, and uh, which will push an awful lot of people in Europe and possibly millions into poverty uh, and uh, unnecessary debt, and uh, for some of them probably homelessness, right? Um, but uh, there's the big th- thing is that. Uh, for wages to match inflation, uh, serious profits are going to have to come out of the pockets of the most wealthy, and they don't want that to happen. And they don't want to allow workers to have the power to be able to say that every time there's uh, inflation, that they should get a wage increase to match it. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, wages are falling dramatically behind and behind their profits and Wages are way too low today for most mm. people. Mm. Well, I mean, I think it sort of shows, I mean, there's massive political and popular support for the strikes from ordinary people because it gives you an indication of, I suppose, the limitation of the power of the media because the media pump out a narrative to bolster the influence of those who are already in power and to defend the status quo. But when people can't make ends meet, they don't care about the propaganda that's spewing out. They have to take action to defend their living standards and to get by, to feed their families, to pay their rent and all the rest of it. So that's the limit. What we see is the class war being revealed here now and basically um, I suppose yeah that when somebody is losing somebody else is winning and those who have the wealth in society are going to have to pay and that does mean pay in terms of taxation on on big profit earnings and so on and in terms of higher taxes paid by the wealthier in, so, in society because over these last number of years where wages is falling and people are grappling with inflation there's been a huge Uh, growth in the inequality in society and those very rich people at the top of society earning an awful lot more and they're going to have to start paying a lot more. But I mean, you're right, like all the war has shown us is these so-called European values about justice and democracy are just a nonsense. Everything has been thrown out in an effort to fight this war. Like as you were saying about Turkey, Turkey have now agreed or basically have got an agreement from Sweden and Finland to go after the Kurds. So the Kurds now are going to be sort of given up and persecuted now. Sacrificial lamb. Persecuted and given up to appease Turkey in order to get Finland and Sweden into NATO in order to annoy uh, Russia. And this is the same thing we saw it in the Foreign Affairs Committee in the UK when Liz Truss was in being questioned and some of the MPs said to her, well, listen, you're talking about this is a battle between democracy and authoritarianism. But to fight that, you're doing a deal with Saudi Arabia. Like, would you agree, like, that they kill Khashoggi, that they uh, um, 
these are an autocratic regime as well. What have you got to say about that? And of course, you've nothing got to say about that because it doesn't matter about authoritarian regimes. This is about, um, I suppose, the US against Russia and Europe has given any sense of sovereignty and independence is just out the door. It's, it's shocking how much they're prepared to gamble on lives in Ukraine and living standards in Europe to appease a US dream, really, uh, which is a, a hatred and, a, and a, a war against Russia just to benefit the shareholders in the arms industry and in uh, NATO. It's been particularly shocking how the likes of Taoiseach Michal Martin has actually bought into this line. He has become a total cheerleader for US imperialism, uh, for NATO. And that's actually, for me... Uh, that's incredibly disingenuous because it's not what the Irish people want. So he's not representing... People often say, oh, you're not representing... Uh, the Hughes, myself and Clare are not representing the Irish people by uh, harping on about international issues sometimes, right? I mean, is Michal Martin representing Irish interests with his uh, US imperialist NATO line? Do RTE do it? Do Irish Times do it? Are they representing the Irish people? I don't think so. And uh, I find that they're way off track. Uh, but in, uh, going back to the point that we're talking about, uh, are wages now going to be allowed to match inflation? This is a huge challenge at home for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, two right-wing parties that have prioritised the interest of uh, big business over, those, over the ordinary people for as long as they can remember, especially in the last 30 years. And a perfect example of that is their refusal this isn't just their failure, it is their refusal to deal with the housing crisis. They are protecting less than 1% of a vested interest in their uh, approach to Ireland's dysfunctional supply of housing and the manner in which we do rent. I was, I was only a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the fact that uh, I have a friend in Wexford whose rent went up 33%, and now there isn't. Uh, he couldn't find one property in Wexford Town available for rent. Available, right? And it went to arbitration as to whether it was okay uh, to put it up by 33%. And the landlord won 33% because it's not a rent pressure zone. I mean, oh, yeah. where's it coming from? It's just, that's unbelievable. But I cannot for the life of me understand the lack of rational thinking from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael that they, has, they haven't actually gone to the space to deal with the housing crisis, to deal with the homelessness crisis. They haven't gone there after over 10 years of it going on. They still haven't gone there. And they say, oh, it can't be solved overnight. It can't be solved overnight. Could have been sorted if they did it the first time they said I mean, that. I mean, <laughs> it were 11 years yeah. of it. And mm -hmm. it has, it's got worse instead of better because they have done nothing constructive to deal with the housing crisis. And I mean, what really baffles me is that uh, Sinn Féin are improving dramatically in the polls all the time. And one of the biggest issues that is hammering the government and helping Sinn Féin is the housing crisis. So mm. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the two right-wing parties in Ireland uh, all our lifetime, are, going to, are losing public support because they are refusing to actually deal with the problem. And they're, feeding, they're giving Sinn Féin the opportunity to actually thrive 
on the issue. Now, obviously, we don't know whether Sinn Féin will solve the housing crisis, but at least they're offering to uh, tackle it. We don't know whether they're going to be successful. Well, uh, they deserve their chance in power uh, to show us whether they can do it or not. Mm. But Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are handing it them to them on a plate by refusing to go there. Well, that's an interesting point, and you could say, well, why is that? And I mean, one of the reasons, I suppose, is that they are determined to be the best neoliberal boys and girls in the EU class, that they're more interested in impressing their masters and their peers in the EU than they are of serving the Irish people and actually even protecting their own influence at home. I mean, Faradkar was on record in the Dáil during the week preparing Irish people that we may have to put up with this cost of living situation for years. So rather than standing back and playing the role of, say, the leadership in a neutral country that could act as an arbitrator between East and West and say, listen, lads, where is this war going? It's been going on now for months. Thousands of people are dying. The destruction is continuing. We're wasting all this money on arms. The world is starving. The food problems are getting bigger. There's a global cost of living crisis. Should we all kind of sit down and try and trash this out and get a resolution that could benefit everybody? You think they would do that, but no, they don't want to do that. They want to prove more than anything else that they are the most gun-ho Europeans. And the European dream is actually about continuing on neoliberalism and bending the knee to US imperialism and be a little lackey of the arms industry in Europe. I mean, the involvement of Ireland in the NATO summit, which was on, uh, their just continuation of going along with the prevailing narrative. We would actually make the point now that Ireland, through Micheál Martin, is on the ultra-right wing even of the European Union. And we saw that fairly clearly in his exchange with Paul Murphy over the Melilla massacre in, uh, in Morocco. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is now... His position is far, far to the right of even many people here in in the EU. I mean, even in Europe, right, the three big players, uh, Germany, France and Italy, have made some soundings of going to the negotiating table, uh, putting some sort of pressure on Zelensky uh, to begin dialogue with the Russians, to bring an end to the war. Whereas we have others, obviously... Uh, predominantly Eastern Europe, but we have the likes of Ireland who seem as as pro-US imperialist and pro-NATO as the worst of the East Europeans. Whereas we have the leaders of, like France and Germany in particular, who have been much better than it. Ireland is fi- are finding themselves much to the right of France and Germany on the war. Mm. I mean, it's scary, but I mean, uh, Claire, did, you're talking about uh, Michal Martin's response to Paul Murphy. Uh, people told me that, oh, his response was terrible. I said, oh, yeah, okay, right, yeah. And I actually didn't look at it for 24 hours, and I looked at it, right? I think, I think it'll be a good... We can insert it now. NGOs are saying that at least 37 people have died. It could be more. Many, many more were injured trying to pass through. This is the responsibility of the EU. The EU recently announced funding of 100 million euros of EU public funds to Morocco to, quote, support border management. To quote the NGOs, this is a tragic symbol of European policies to externalise the EU's border. The two-faced and racist border policies of the EU is on display for 
all to see. Why shouldn't black and brown people fleeing from persecution and war have exactly the same rights as those correctly fleeing uh, from so-called white or Christian countries like Ukraine have? Taoiseach, will you condemn the murder of refugees uh, on the border of Morocco and the Spanish uh, enclave of Malia? And will you condemn the fortress Europe policies which lead to these deaths? Um, first of all, again, I think your anti-Europeanism is shocking and your anti-EU position, which is so consistent, always seeking to undermine the European Union, despite the fact that the European Union, of any actor in the world, is the most humanitarian, contribute most on humanitarian issues to the neighbourhood, uh, and all it gets is attack, attack, attack. Uh, you have consistently attacked Europe. You don't consistently attack Russia. Can you, you condemn? You don't consistently attack, attack. You do not. You've, you've previously you said always the, used you've the previously opportunity. Said that that you we always, do. through the chair, use the opportunity to attack the European Union, be it vaccines, be it helping Ukraine, um, be it in relation to migration. Can you talk about the Europe actually, died, please, of all the actors in the world, if you go to any of the, the, the data, analyse it objectively, does more and anybody else in terms of trying to work, look after people and provide for people. That is the reality oh. uh, of what is happening. Uh, and in relation to Deputy Smith's you, Will you uh, talk about point, the refugees, Tisha? In relation to Deputy Smith's Did you see the videos? Will you condemn the policy? Well, in relation just to move Deputy on, Smith's point, say how great Europe is. Um, Do you support sorry. an investigation into the murders? I, can, I have the floor now. I've made my point. But you haven't answered. Uh, because you didn't I'm, answer the questions I at have, all. I you just accused me... I dealt with your ceaseless propaganda no, no, you against didn't. the European Union. You're an anti-EU... What do you say to the families uh, of people who have died because of fortress Europe policy? What I say to the authorities in which many of these reside, you should attack those authorities. But the EU is funding them. Who created authoritarian regimes and who create conditions that makes life impossible for people. It's EU policy. It's, it's EU policy. I mean, it's shocking. I mean, he didn't express one ounce one percent of compassion for the people that died. I mean, this is not what the Irish... This isn't the Irish people. This isn't the position the Irish people take. The Irish, pe the Irish people have a tradition of actually caring about people in a bad place, about people suffering. This is alien to that. This is a, like a, a completely callous US position. Mm. that Mihal Martin has taken. It is, it is scandalous. And people should listen to, I mean, the, the response to Paul Murphy, um, it's just so bad. I, 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 I'm, I'm really finding it hard to come to terms with it, that, that this could actually, uh, that an Irish leader could go to this place. Well, to me, this man has become delusional now. He was here about three weeks ago in Strasbourg playing the European card, the great European statesman, getting the old Bula boss, round of applause, great boy, great European. And he's lapping it up. I honestly think he is sort of strategically trying to place himself for some sort of a European position because not only is it out of kilter with the people of Ireland, it's out of kilter with the people of Europe. I mean, the European Parliament, and to get something on the agenda, you need a clear majority of the people. So across the political groups, and Mick has made the point loads of times that the European Parliament is about 90% right wing, but yet the European Parliament has demanded that this issue will be discussed at our plenary next week in Strasbourg. Such is the horror that on the borders of 
of Europe, we see people being basically massacred and the numbers are unclear. We said 87 during the week. That was, it seems to be less, but the circumstances are appalling. The UN have warned that the Spanish authorities and Moroccan are moving to sort of very hurriedly uh, bury bodies without any accurate knowledge. So here we have the contrast of the uh, when we heard of these mass graves in, in Bucha, that there was the international press were invited in every day. Here we have bodies yeah. being hurriedly... As well they should be. Like yeah. that's, Here we have know. been sort of pushed to the side, buried. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody talking about it. The UN have called for an investigation. And Michal Martin couldn't even say, maybe, I don't know the full facts, but if people are killed, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Or say, oh, I'm sure the Spanish didn't know about it, which they obviously did because mm-hmm. their own guards were fully involved in it and they haven't led the call for an independent inquiry into their own forces. So they did know. But let's pretend that Michal didn't. You'd think he might have said, oh, that's desperate and my sympathies with the family. But I'm sure the EU and Spain didn't know about that. Uh, but uh, this is reprehend. This man is uh, is an embarrassment yeah. and a disgrace and to hide, use the Behind this kind of accusation of anti-Europeanism, when as a member of the European Union, we should be holding the other members to account for what they're doing. And Mm. it's something that we have a power to influence. I mean, it's it's like we're we're almost uh, being accused of being anti-European if we're showing some humanity, if we actually think that you shouldn't murder migrants uh, at EU borders. Mm -hmm. And people should remember, I mean, why are these people fleeing their country in Africa to come to Europe to make a living? Why are they risking life crossing the Mediterranean? Why are they doing that? Why are they leaving everyone, all their own family and probably kids behind as well uh, in order to go to Europe for a holiday? They've been driven to it, right? And whether we like it or not, but EU policy in Africa is creating migrants. We are still behaving like colonialists. And the tax status operation that's going on, the fact that Ireland, which has been thankfully, truthfully declared a tax haven by legislation in EU last year, right? Ireland is a tax haven. And we are facilitating the perpetual, uh, unending poverty in parts of Africa with our tax haven behaviour. We are keeping people poor. We are robbing countries in the global south of money by our behaviour. And then we have a problem. And then Michal Martin wants to blame uh, the fact that the migrants are fleeing on authoritarian governments, right? Well, it just so happens, right, that the authoritarian governments that he's talking about are complicit with so many big business entities from Europe, the US and Canada in particular. It goes even further though, I think in this case, it's actually Sudan, a lot of the migrants are coming from, which was funded, that the, the autocratic government there is actually in receipt of EU funds. So it's, as well as the big business thing, there's a political transfer of money yeah. happening. So it's it's a really blatant case of where the EU has, th- bears huge responsibility. I think one of the sinister things here and, and the reason why we're right to focus in on this exchange is that what Michal Martin is, it's a consequence of this constant mantra about Russian disinformation. Because not only did he not condemn the action or not respond to the issues being raised by Paul Murphy, but he used the opportunity to attack Paul Murphy and say, oh, well, you're just, uh, you know, uh, you you never criticise Russia. You're just, you're just against the EU. 
Now, this is incredibly dangerous, I think. And I mean, it, it's feeding into this thing and I'm on the, spe the special foreign interference committee. And this is the propaganda that anybody who criticizes the EU, it's not legitimate or maybe who criticizes the, the manner in which the EU is dealing with the war in Ukraine. It's not that that's their opinion that they're entitled to express it. It's that they are either in the pay of Moscow, a Putin puppet, uh, or they're a useful idiot, that they couldn't possibly work this thing out for themselves, that they, they can't buy into it. So this is a consequence of that. This is what, what this is saying, is that if you attack the EU, well, you're just a puppet of an authoritarian mm. regime. So therefore, the EU leadership does what it's like and is not held to scrutiny. And that is the very antithesis of what democracy is supposed to be. But yet they bandy around these words uh, and turn truth into lies. He, he is a disgrace. He really mm -hmm. is. And I mean, this idea that ourselves or Paul Murphy or anyone else uh, uh, that are expressing uh, concerns about the EU approach uh, to the war or to the migrants, the idea that we're automatically Russian puppets, right? I mean... Where's the where's the evidence like? I mean, where's the where's the rationale behind it? Sadly, Putin. To, I mean, when Gorbachev broke up the Soviet Union in '91, Yeltsin took over with the help of the Americans. They sold off loads of the state assets for about two percent of their real value. The oligarchs were enriched. Foreign uh, private investors were enriched. Right. It was a disaster for, for Russia. It pauperized the place. And when Putin took over, right, he actually continued it in a different way. You know, he, 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 he strengthened Russia in some way because Yeltsin had left it a complete basket case. But Putin didn't challenge the right-wing neoliberal agenda that Yeltsin brought in. He continued it. And he continued uh, to, uh, to militarize almost against the left-wing against the communist parties in Russia. Uh, he, he has been uh, oppressive with the, with the media. Uh, we've never said otherwise, right? We, we don't like what Putin does in Russia, and we think it's terrible and unfair to an awful lot of Russian people that they're not allowed uh, the, the sort of freedom that we'd like them to have, mm. right? It doesn't change the fact that Europe should be open to criticism when they behave badly. And, and unfortunately, they're actually starting to behave more like the Russians. Than, uh, than we'd like him to behave. The same as Ukraine. Uh, after 2014, with the new liberal reforms that were brought in Ukraine, the IMF gave Ukraine a loan of 40 billion, a loan, not a grant, of 40 billion after, 20, after 2014, right? Now, IMF bring, put in 40 billion, right? And uh, it was conditional. They had to, they had to, they had to privatise 340 state companies. They had to cut unemployment benefit by 20%. They had to cut pensions by 20%. They had to open up uh, certain private enterprises in Ukraine to foreign uh, investment. Not in the interest of the Ukrainian people, in the interest of the oligarchs, which goes on wholesale in Russia, because Putin has done the same for the oligarchs in Russia. Mm -hmm. So what Ukraine were actually doing since 2014, under the influence of the Americans in the EU, was actually making them more like Russia. Mm. And now we're looking at a European situation where they're prepared to undermine the living standards of every goddamn European citizen in order to punish Russia. And yet the surveys have shown, by the European Union 
themselves. A European Union foreign relations uh, survey showed that over two to one people in Europe prefer to work for peace rather than just trying to damage Russia. Because that's what the EU is doing. They want to undermine the Russian economy. It's what the American agenda is about. It's what the NATO's agenda is about. They don't give a damn how many Ukrainians die. Uh, they just want to damage Russia. Mm. And the EU has fallen for hook, line and sinker. It's a disgrace. Well, and it is interesting how they're hiding behind a defence of democracy to exactly, as you say, become more authoritarian. And that's really what's happening. And we had a graphic example of it in the Foreign Interference Committee where we had representatives of the Italian Parliament in before us. And as Mick said, it, Italy actually is the country which more than any other supports peace more than punishing Russia. Now, all the countries do support peace except Poland. They would prefer to see Russia punished and the war continue. But all of the other countries surveyed preferred peace. And actually, the Italians were against sending weapons to Ukraine, even though their parliament voted to send weapons to Ukraine. So in a no normal democracy, when public opinion is against the government, the answer would be, do you know what? Maybe the government should change its tack and listen to the people. But the response of the Italian state is there's a problem with the media. And they have launched an investigation into state television and the four private TV stations for the crime of having interviewed Russian journalists and some Russian politicians. Now, bear in mind, they haven't given them programmes to host and launch their own thing. They've been brought on to TV talk shows to be challenged by the presenters. So probably a bit like the famous, infamous David McCullough bringing in the Russian ambassador, which didn't go too well for the Russians. But in any case... Um, this is the crime and a special parliamentary committee is investigating this and the EU, because I asked the commissioner about it and the parliament, are fully invert. This needs to be because this is Russian disinformation because the people of Italy believe that NATO have a role. They're not in favour of arms. They want peace. And I said, sorry, that's the position of the Pope. Like, he's Italian as well. Like, you know, I mean, it's uh, maybe, well, why are we saying they're listening? Like, could they not have made their own mind up? Could they not have weighed up the things? Could they not have been listening to them? Why is this Russian propaganda? That's demonstrable nonsense, like, you know. But no, no, it's Russian propaganda and the state broadcaster is going to have to. And then in the same breath, they say, but we don't want a ministry of truth now. Um, you know, we, we want to defend media pluralism and we're not afraid. But this is the, the mad world that we're living in here where truth is lies and Orwell is most definitely alive and well. They cannot get enough of this nonsense. And they sit there spewing it back out without thinking. And the arrogance towards the citizens of Europe that they think they can't discern, that they can't listen to an interview with a Russian journalist or a Russian politician and that they're going to be so sucked in by that, that mm -hmm. that's the problem rather than then actually they're getting a balanced view. They're learning to look at it from a Russian point of view and look at it from a Ukrainian point of view and try and put the two together and say, do you know what? Everybody has a point in this. Let's get them all to sit down and sort it out, which is what a normal person would do. But no, no, that's not good enough. You're either with us or you're against us. I, I just hope the Argentinian-born Pope uh, is not upset <laughs> well, by you that, calling that, that, Italian. But, but I'll tell you what now... Uh, it could be accused of being worse than an Italian. Well, I actually, well, obviously for us to say anyone is Italian is a compliment. But I, what I meant was he's based in Italy, like the Vatican has its HQ, even though the Vatican is an independent state as well, I know, and country. But the Vatican is, to, is you know, it's kind of Italian, isn't it, really? Oh, it yeah. is? Yeah. You know, so. anyway. Nothing wrong with Italy. Yeah, And nothing wrong with that Pope either.
Fair play I know he's been saying he's been saying. I know, in case I forget to mention it, uh, Italian Serie A season starting on the 14th of August, earliest ever. Because of uh, this mad idea to have a, a World Cup in Qatar in December. Well, in case I forget it, I mean, the Pope has done some really excellent writings on climate change. Right. And that is one of the other areas which has been thrown to the wolves in uh, this war effort as well. We see now countries going to be going back to burning coal. We're going to be importing South African coal and all these necessary things. They're actually even going to sacrifice the planet in their battle. Uh, against Russia, it's utter yeah. lunacy how they've they've sacrificed on that front. Yeah, it, it's very disappointing. Um, first, with COVID, uh, there was a bit of clawback on uh, some of the greater ambition around environmental measures being brought in to tackle climate change and to deal with uh, biodiversity loss, uh, which is a huge threat to the planet. Uh, but the war is actually bringing it to a whole new level altogether. And there's massive uh, rollback on uh, promises that were being made and ambition uh, around climate. And it is... The idea that... I mean, this this idea being portrayed that the, the war uh, between Ukraine and Russia is almost life-determining for the world and that it's, it's all about values... Is the greatest quote of Lord Codswallop I have ever heard yeah. in my lifetime. It, every war is horrific, and this war is horrific. And the sad part about it is that it is the, the poorest of the innocent Ukrainians that are actually dying the most. And obviously, uh, and poor tr- Russian troops from a fucking working class background in Russia, not Putin or his fucking oligarchs uh, or government officials, they're not the ones dying either, right? But it's mostly Ukrainians that are dying. And uh, uh, we're pretending that this is the, the first war of all wars, when in actual fact, um, over a million civilians were killed in Iraq. And the Irish, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael supported that illegal invasion of Iraq. There's uh, up to, according to the World Food Programme, up to a million people could die of hunger in Afghanistan in the next 12 months. A war that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael supported as well. Another illegal war. And now we don't give a damn about the Afghans. And as we've mentioned several times about Yemen, right? Uh, Over 400,000 dead now and uh, over 15 million driven to extreme poverty and we couldn't care less about them and yet the war between Russia and Ukraine is, uh, is a raison d'etre it's all about our values European values are at stake and uh, von der Leyen thinks that uh, the Ukrainians are prepared to die for the European dream what a yeah, not much of a Fianna Fáil what excursion over to Melilla either to get their photographs taken in Morocco. Yeah, anyway, don't seem to be. But there was some. So, getting away from from the war for a second and back to the question of climate change and the environment, there was some somewhat pro- positive developments in the environmental committee this week, I believe, Michael. Yeah, um, the the nature restoration regulation has been introduced, and uh, it's something really good. And um, in fairness, uh, Commissioner uh, Sinkovicic and Timmermans have actually, uh, in our opinion, they have done well to get it uh, as far as they did because there was a lot of lobbying and a lot of pressure uh, trying to stop these measures being brought in. And they're they're about... um, 
you know, making uh, our land and our environments uh, safer in every way possible. And then there was also um, some legislation on fighting against pesticides. Now, um, look, it's an improvement. It's not enough, but at least uh, it's something. Mm -hmm. And um, we had the, we had the commissioner, the Greek commissioner, um, Karakiatis. Yeah, Karakiatis. Uh, what, what? How do you pronounce it? Not exactly sure. Yeah, oh, Stella Kyriakidis. Kyriakidis. Yeah, Stella Kyriakidis. She's actually... Uh, Cypriot, I think. She is Cypriot. Is she Cypriot? The Greek is that Skinas fella anyway, oh, so right, I know. Okay. So she's definitely not yeah. Greek anyway. Okay, right. But um, no, she's pretty impressive enough, you know. Well, Skinas isn't. Can I just put that on the record? He's reprehensible. Right, okay. Um, but anyway... Um, They've set some. some I, I I did point out to her that 1.2 million Europeans signed Save the Bees and Farmers Citizens Initiative, uh, which called for an 80 percent reduction of synthetic pesticides by 2030, and a, a, a clear roadmap on how Europe will phase out the use of synthetic pesticides mm. altogether by 2035. We haven't got that. We're not getting any uh, total phase out yet. Uh, we're getting a. An aim of fifty percent reduction by of by twenty thirty. Okay. Right. But what we're talking about is the elimination of the dangerous pesticides. So now if you think about it, we're in twenty twenty two. In eight years' time, we'll we'll only be consuming half of the dangerous pesticides mm. that we shouldn't be consuming. It's gonna take us eight years to get rid of 50% of them. So we are actually committed at this stage to consuming 50% of dangerous pesticides still in 2030. Now, yeah. that's a bit scary, given that there's a lot of our stuff going into food uh, that's not good for our health. And uh, a lot of it is directly linked to cancer and uh, other serious illnesses that people are well familiar with. Um, so, but look at... At the same time, uh, there was some progress made. Uh, of course, it's disappointing that the progress could be better and uh, we, do, we need to do more. But at the same time, we also understand that uh, the commissioners uh, like Sinkovic and Kyriakidis and Timmermans, uh, they have the might of big industry lobbying against them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they don't find it easy. It can't be easy. Uh, so any progress they do make, um, I think we should give credit uh, yeah. when it's due, even if it's less than what we want. Yeah. Well, the whole European institutions are a battle between the lobbyists, really, aren't they? Mm. That's what it is. It's a place yeah. where lobbyists meet and try and influence the law for their um, own profit. Yeah, there'll be probably lots of that going on next week when uh, the Parliament reconvenes in Strasbourg for the plenary. Um Lots of things on the agenda there. So, yeah, I mean, look, we're looking forward to it. One, the roving train of this is Europe. Uh, we had Michal Martin the last time, dear God. Uh, and now we have the Greek Prime Minister coming next time. And obviously, the Greek Minister were present in the Parliament this week as well. They too have been in the spotlight in terms of their role in the complicity in migrant deaths in the Mediterranean and indeed in illegal pushbacks brazened it out at the Libe committee so mm. it'll be interesting to see what way they take it in the in the plenary but they are going to get it in the neck on that issue I'm sure yeah yeah for sure well until next week then for for bye 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 adios